Guy Adami here. Welcome back to On the Tape with Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Yes, they're my dear friends. Today we'll be talking about the transitory tantrum that was coined by Dan Nathan. Meme stocks, meme stocks mania, meme stocks mania. I don't know what that means. Danny's going to rip off the tape on ESG investing. And later we'll be going off the tape in an interview with our friend Meltem Demers, the chief strategy officer of CoinShares. Stay tuned. We've got a great show for you today. Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. So many things caught my eye this past week. On the top of my list there, gang, was Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman. Seemingly out of nowhere this week, he said, you know what? I know our economists here at Morgan Stanley don't think so. This is my opinion. But I happen to think we're going to see a Fed taper towards the end of this year, and we're going to see them raise interest rates in the beginning of next year. Oh, where'd that come from there, JG? I'm fascinated as to your thinking. You clearly have been listening to On The Tape or watching CNBC Fast Money because I'm in your camp. But my question to you, Danny Moses, is why would he seemingly out of nowhere come out and make a comment like that? Like, what is he seeing that the rest of the world is not seeing? And what is he trying to get ahead of? High rates are good for the banks in general, so that would be a positive for his stock, obviously. Sounds like he'll be leaving the company, so he has nothing to really lose at this point by making that comment. And I'm sure he sees things in his business, in the lending area and the growth area, the consumer growth and credit and things like that that they're seeing. So I don't know. He's seeing what you and I are seeing, Guy, and I guess Dan doesn't see it that way. But I'm more interested in Yellen's comments, actually, she made Washington about that we need to be spending more money. And at the same time, when she said we need to be spending more money fiscally, she actually said that she expects inflation to run hot to the end of the year. And so I just don't see how that jives, certainly jives with what Gorman is saying, but let's issue more debt so rates can move higher so we can have a higher debt load. I was more intrigued with that comment than I was from Gorman. Yeah, and I, I know Dan has some thoughts on this as well, but I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking Mr. Gorman is interviewing for his next job, and I know we're going to get added on the Twitter, and Dan's going to call me a boomer and make fun of me, but I'm convinced the reason why he wants to do something like that, he's going on record, and he wants to be, I think, in my opinion, he's setting up to be the next Fed chair. And you know, Morgan Stanley did announce co-presidents a week, week and a half or so ago, I think this is the exit strategy. He's on record, and he'll be able to look back and say, see, I told you so. I would have been right. I should have been Fed chair back in 2021. Make me one now. So I'm crazy. Yeah, but you know what? I don't believe in coinkadinks there, Dan Nathan. What say you? Well, I just don't think that there's any scenario where the Biden administration thinks that a CEO of a financial institution the size of Morgan Stanley calling for rate increases fits their thought process about the individual to run the supposedly independent Federal Reserve. So to me, I don't think that's probably what's going on here. There's lots of calls for people worried about the Fed overstaying their welcome. You guys know it. We've been talking about it all year in this podcast. This is the policy mistake it seems that the Fed routinely makes in asset bubbles are created. We see what's going on um, in all different pockets of risk assets right now. Crypto is one of them we're going to talk about a little later, but we've seen some volatility and some high valuation stocks that seemingly should be subject to some valuation concerns as it relates to interest rates. So it seems like everyone's on the same side of this boat, though. Yeah, it's interesting. David Rosenberg made some comments on inflation, and I think he's in your camp. And it's interesting because typically I line up with some of the things that Rosie's been saying, but on this one, we're sort of taking a different path. But he's not as exorcised by things as I am. And I think he's in the Dan Nathan camp. And again, I will tell you this, that Dan Nathan, who coined the term mega about the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, and the Amazon six months to nine months prior to President Trump pulling out his legal pad and writing those names down, has now coined another phrase, Danny Moses, and that would be 
Uh, Dan, do you want to just put it out there so I don't butcher it? We're calling it the transitory tantrum. And we're just thinking back to 2013 when the Fed started floating trial balloons about tapering their bond purchases. That's essentially what, what's going on right now. We saw that in the Fed minutes. There were some Fed participants questioning the level in which they're buying bonds right now. And I think that if you look at the stock market through the lens of a tantrum, well, we haven't had a whole heck of a lot of volatility. There's a lot of talk about it. A lot of pundits talk about it. A lot of bank CEOs talking about all this sort of stuff. But stocks don't really seem to care other than pockets of high valuation ones like we just just described. But I think we're going to look back at some point on the other side of this pandemic. It's probably going to be in early 2022. And we're going to see rates back there right where they were, the average over the last 10 years, inflation right there, GDP growth right there. And we're going to say, you know what? These were just some kind of short-term disconnects in supply chains, some weird supply-demand situations here relative to the pandemic. And we're going to be right back to where we were pre-pandemic. I mean, I love David Rosenberg because Back during the crisis, even then, we always leaned on him. We loved talking to other bears at the time in 2005, six, and seven. But just note this. I mean, his backdrop to all of this is that the economy is only as strong as the recovery and that it's going to wane from there. He doesn't believe that there's any foundational growth that will occur beyond that comeback period. So that's one theme that he's got in there. The other is that he loves comparing it back to the 20s and 30s when rates actually went down 150 basis points after the roaring 20s. Well, I got news for him. Things were a lot different. One, there was no Fed policy of any type of QE back then. The debt to GDP was running around 20 to 40% back then as well. And the one thing that I think that no one talks about, and it probably won't happen, but it is something to consider, with the amount of debt we have out there, at what point do rates move higher from a credit quality perspective, the way that things were meant to be from a risk-reward perspective? And this all boils down to one thing. I don't think that anyone's saying there's massive inflation ever, but I go back to this one... Co- why is there still quantitative easing and what would rates really be without it? So, yes, rates have pulled in on the 10 year from, you know, 170 ish down to one, the high 150s. They're hovering around 160, 165, whatever it is. The supply demand equation right now, at least for the last few weeks, first of all, we've had low volume in the stock market, which we can talk about. But in the bond market, same thing. The auctions have been small. The QE that's continuing, the 80 billion of treasuries being bought out there. I just think the demand supply in general in bonds is tweaked and the QE. I want to know where rates are going to be without. And I want to see what happens when they talk about tapering. And I think the Fed deep down wants to know what the market reaction is going to be. And it's not going to be pretty. I want to know, too. I mean, I think they do want to know, but I think they're terrified as to what the answer is going to be. It's sort of like Charlton Heston at the end of Planet of the Apes, if you remember. You know, what is he going to find out there? He's going to find his destiny. Well, guess what? The destiny for the Fed is the Statue of Liberty hanging out of the sand halfway through. That's just my opinion. The other thing that we didn't bring up, though, that I think is really important is the fact that the U.S. dollar is starting to be back on that trajectory lower, having rallied early, you know, March, April. It's back on that slide to the downside. And I got to tell you something, say what you want, but a weaker dollar by definition, Dan Nathan, is inflationary. And you get through that 88 level in the DXY, it's going to get real ugly real fast. The Fed already told you that they're going to let inflation run hot here. And so if you think of some of the major inputs, so whether it be commodities and just think about what's going on in the housing market. I think this is really important. So we had this migration during the pandemic. So there was this unusual demand. There was really weak supply. We had unusually low interest rates. We had consumers that had tons of cash for not being able to go do a whole heck of a lot of things. And all of a sudden now, what are we seeing, guys? Have you guys looked at this housing data over the last couple weeks or so, it's cooling down. Okay. And you could say, well, that's a supply thing, but let's be frank. How long could this sort of activity go when we are literally going to be on the other side of the pandemic? So I just really feel like the back half of this year, we are going to look at decelerating trends. That is going to be the mantra here. And we're going to have a lot of things come back into balance. Here's another one, chip shortages. Did you guys see that GM, they had to stop down a bunch of production because they couldn't get a lot of chips. Well, they're opening those five plants again. They're going to start making cars. They have the chips coming through. Just think about it. You could be really excited about all this stuff, or you could think back over the last 30 years that every time there's been these like huge shifts one way, and it becomes just a common sort of sentiment that that's the way it's going to be going forward, it usually shifts back the other way, and we find some equilibrium. That's your transitory tantrum. We're going to be looking back and saying that about 2021. I love it. I think it's great. That's like a rip off the tape. That's a Dan Nathan rip off the tape. But I got to tell you something. You know, we're going to have Meltem. We're going to go off the tape with Meltem in a little while. So we got to talk about Bitcoin. I got a question for you, Danny Moses. What do Brian Kelly, Ray Dalio, and Carl Icahn all have in common? They all love Bitcoin here. Does that strike you as a serious question? I mean, obviously I understand Brian Kelly, but 
Ray Dalio, maybe, but Carl Icahn, can you wrap your head around that? Carl Icahn is saying he might pour more than a billion, a billion with a B, into cryptocurrencies. He just wants to be cool. He just wants to be invited to the Hampton summer parties and be cool at this point. And he, he got a 50% pullback. So he says, you know what? I'm in. I'm, I'm just going to say whether he, how much he buys or not, I don't know. But for him, it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, I would just say this, you know, for all of those people out there who are still kind of saying that just the traditional finance world doesn't get Bitcoin, doesn't get crypto, I'm really hard pressed to find any major financier or, or bank CEO or, or anybody who's who's kind of doesn't really at least at the very least think that this is a real asset class at this moment here. And so to me, I think one of the the worst things about crypto right now, it's really hard to find too many naysayers, despite the fact you just had this 50% peak to trough decline. I also think that the fact that stocks look expensive prior to people like Dalio and Icon, bonds look expensive, certainly if you think rates are going to be moving higher. So where can you put your money? And we say this on every show, there's still so much money out there. So from a risk reward perspective, Maybe they just think that that's opportunistic to buy it here. Yeah, we're going to find out. He also said that they're not seeing crypto volatility seeping into other risk assets. Like Colonel Sherman Potter said, I say horse hockey to that because I absolutely think, you know, that sell off, that brief sell off we saw in equities was clearly on the back, in my opinion, on the sell off in Bitcoin. And I do think as much as they want to say uncorrelated, uncorrelated, I think there's a huge correlation. And I think we just saw the tip of the iceberg in terms of that sell-off, Danny Moses. I think it actually explains one of the reasons that market volumes have been down in the stock market. I, like we talked about before, I think money had left the equity market, gone into some of these altcoins or whatever you want to call them. Money was destroyed because it was, at least on the smaller coins that are out there, and that money's gone forever. And so you've probably lost, not a huge percentage, but maybe one, two, three, three percent of market participants that on the margin trade their brains out on Robinhood every day. But the whole market right now feels like it's taking a deep breath and everyone's just kind of exhausted and maybe into Memorial Day and people are out more of their homes now given all the vaccinations. So I think there's just less trading in general. I actually think the entire city of New York was either at the Islander game last night or at the Garden last night, the Nick game. But anyway, I just think that's all, it all kind of blends together. I think you make a great point though about a lot of money that had moved out of, let's say the meme stocks or the SPACs or or the recent IPOs. They had these big runs and then they kind of just fell flat and they moved into these altcoins. But I do think it's important to recognize that the S&P 500, I mean, Guy, you're talking about the sell-off. You're talking about the sell-off. The sell-off is like down 2%. I mean, I honestly, on that day when crypto was crashing last week, the S&P was up. I actually think it did what it was supposed to do in a lot of ways. And we go back to 2018 and Q4 and then Q1 2020 when the stock market was in a free fall, crypto got absolutely destroyed. But this time around, when crypto was getting destroyed, the stock market barely took notice. But I do agree that, that some of those pockets of risk in the stock market have easily, easily moved into the crypto market. The interesting thing about the 24-7 trading nature crypto is it's always real time. And we all agree, and Dan, you have to agree to this, that last Friday, going into that weekend when crypto was crumbling a little bit, you did think to yourself, if crypto crumbles over this weekend into like, let's say the 20,000 land for Bitcoin and the $1,000 land for Ethereum, whatever it would be, you knew or you thought to yourself that futures would be a little bit lock limit down on Monday morning. Now, it was up and down all week, a double down all week, and it did stabilize. So it's hard to tell exactly. But I think there is a correlation, obviously, just to speculation in general. I didn't think that, Danny. And let me tell you why. I think the institutions that would be selling futures on a Sunday night and have them locked down limit are actually buyers of crypto. They want to see this pullback. So to me, I think that they are thinking about it as an uncorrelated asset. I think they're thinking of it as a speculative asset. And, and they were perfectly happy to see crypto come in and and be able to buy it. I don't think the narrative around institutions getting into crypto has changed one bit, despite the volatility and despite the decline. I'm not saying they didn't buy it. I'm saying the fact that they actually may have bought it, may have actually saved, they didn't do it to save the market, but it may have actually saved, I believe, the markets, at least from a Monday's perspective. Look, we've had low volume all week. I think people are sitting on the sidelines waiting for what the next move is going to be. And I'm not calling a market crash by any means, but I do think there is a correlation that will play out. And certainly, there's a lot of S&P stocks now that are more and more correlated. Not a lot, but there are several that are correlated to Bitcoin, period. A lot of large companies are trading with it to a degree. So, No question about it. 
You know, it's in, I love those commercials that are at that old dude that's sort of walking back and forth with a mic, you know, in his hand or the, the, the head thing like Madonna. And he's saying, you know, the waiter doesn't need to know your name. I mean, I think that's the greatest thing ever. And, you know, my hashtagging. Why do I mention that? Because what are these things, Dan? These meme, these memes, meme stocks, the gifs. Yeah, I really, I still don't understand what the hell that means. But I got to tell you something. I know the names, and two of the names are AMC and GameStop. And I got to tell you something. This was a crazy week. Now, just to refresh some people's memory, a couple of weeks ago, AMD did a forty-three million dollar offering at basically nine dollars and ninety cents a share ish. Do you know that stock traded north of twenty-five dollars this week? It's crazy. It seems like that we're back in business with the GameStops, the AMCs, and some of these other names that were left for dead by people like me, by the way, over the last couple of months. you have any thoughts on that, Dan, Nathan? Yeah, easily. And this goes back to what we were just talking about. I think the money came out of these altcoins and came right back into the things that they know can be squeezed if it's in a coordinated fashion. So it's the market has a memory here. We know there's short interest. We know these stocks can be moved around. We know that there's very little reason for a fundamental basis to be buying these stocks where they're trading. But to the point, they've just become internet memes and it's easy to kind of get narratives working around them. Again, try to check your brain in the closet when these things happen. And I'm not going to go out there and short these stocks. But AMC was at $7 before the pandemic. Just put that in perspective. Yes, they did go raise capital. So they have more cash on the balance sheet, except they burn cash every quarter. I think they have $5 billion in debt, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe a billion in cash on hand. It's a $13 billion market cap here. So don't even try to anyone to fundamentally tell me a story that AMC is a buy here because they're reinventing something. So they are just meme stocks or whatever you want to call them. And again, I think it will destroy value for people over time that buy into this or chase. It is what it is, but that, that's the game right now. Well, it is fast. I mean, Rich Greenfield, I think when the stock AMC was trading either side of $11.5, $12, he came out, did a very thoughtful research piece. And he said, you know, given everything that's going on, the equity, the equity of AMC is worth a penny. Think about that. Now here we are at the price. So very thoughtful work, but you can see what happens when the crowd takes over. And I've, and I've made the comparison in GameStop to the Cosmos of the 1970s. You know, the Cosmos brought in every world-class player from all over the place, and they created a bit of a dynasty. Well, that's really what GameStop seems to be doing with their management. They're bringing people in from all over the world, and maybe they got something planned. I have no idea, but the stock is clearly telling a story. So I just think it was a fascinating week, and maybe there's still a lot of chapters left in this thing, but it's sort of left me, like many things do, Dan Nathan, shaking my head. The other thing that leaves me shaking my head is this whole Exxon situation. And I know Danny Moses has some thoughts, but climate activists putting two new board members in. This is a historic deal for ExxonMobil, a stock that was obviously under a lot of pressure a year or so ago. Not only was oil getting crushed, but obviously the ESG investing coming out as well. And everything was sort of moving against Exxon. The stock itself got off the mat, but now they seemingly in the crosshairs again. You know, it's interesting. Ford just had its investor day yesterday, and the stock is up 30% from its lows just earlier this month. And what are they doing? They're committing more capital. They're going to spend $30 billion on electric vehicles by 2025. Originally, they had said they're going to spend $22 billion, and they expect their fleet to be about 40 to 50% all electric by 2030 and all electric in Europe by that point. And so what's, what's interesting to me about as somebody who has an electric vehicle, has a Ford one, you think about the fact that you don't ever have to go to an Exxon anymore unless you got to go take a piss or get a Coke. Excuse me. Whoa, like whoa, 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 whoa. What does that even so, mean? I don't so, even know what you're saying there. What I mean, I go to Exxon's is, all the time. I get my, I go in, I buy some gum, maybe I get a Charleston <laughs> Chew, right. I fill up my gas tank. By the way, Dan Nathan, just talking about gas tanks and yell at me all you want. I was in Washington, D.C. last weekend and something happened for the first time ever in my life. I'm 57 years old. I've never seen this before. And what is that? Well, I went to fill up my tank, was probably, you know, maybe an eighth of a tank left or something, you know, right on when the light starts flashing empty. And you know how much money? It got up to $100. Transitory. Transitory. I've never seen. As a matter of fact, the machine stopped. I still have more to go. And the machine stopped. That's American Express. But- that you think that's transitory? I say once again. I said it of before. Course I'll say it's it again. transitory. Of course, guy, guy. Every single time over the last twenty years that you have filled up your SUV and it has cost a hundred dollars. Six months later, how much did it cost? 
$70. I'm just telling you, just think about it. It never never cost me $100 before. It's a first ever. It has. It has. It has after all the hurricanes. It has. Trust me. Okay. It's going back the other way. All right. So my last point about Exxon before I I feel like I'm just like a, a, a nonstop rot here. But what I'm saying is this, if I'm Exxon, I'm starting to think about how to go down parallel paths. They used to put the ethanol in the gas and this, there, whatever. I want to start building out charging stations because if GM and Ford are going to be 50% EV by the end of this decade, ExxonMobil's got a problem. So, you know, to me, I think there's probably other ways that they can avoid some of the ire of uh, these ESG funds. Well, you know, not to use another car pun here, but they're really going to try to change the tire while the car is moving here because they have a balance sheet that they can't afford to make major changes with right now, right? It's not like they're debt-free. It's like certainly they can say and do do things over time, but it's going to be a long time. And that's probably all these investors want is just a commitment to something that they they will be doing. And they're definitely going to get it now for sure. Danny, don't you think that if they had said to investors, they have tons of debt, it doesn't matter, just throw it onto the pile heap, that they're going to buy or build a charging station network, or they're going to kind of invest in the technology so they can put them at their gas stations, that would make a lot of sense. That would kind of give them a lot of cover. So to me, maybe that's a 2022 thing. Well, you know, we've we started this segment a few weeks ago when Danny was just pissed off about something and and he came up with this great name, Rip Off the Tape. He's a genius, Danny Moses, as I'm sure many of you folks know. You saw him in the movie that I haven't seen. Went by the way, is it playing in the theaters? <laughs> like if I went to my local AMC, would I be able to see that big short picture or no? According to AMC stock price, they've been showing every movie marathon and they're charging $100 a ticket because that's the only way to validate uh, where, the, where the stock is trading. I never heard the term ESG prior to probably, I don't know, maybe two or so years ago. And that became so much of the lexicon, right? But I think there's getting a little, there's some blowback going on, Danny. And I know you're, you're sort of want to do your rot, as they say. That's what do they, what do they call those things, Dan Nathan, when you put letters together to make the, what, what is that called? An acronym. Like Thank NAGA, you. I appreciate Microsoft, that. Apple, Google, Amazon. Well, Danny came up with rot. So Danny, please talk to me about your thoughts on the whole ESG movement. Listen, this ESG movement started kind of in 2004, obviously stands for environmental social governance. And when you think about environmental, climate change, carbon footprint, think about social, it's working conditions, employee treatment, and Governance is board diversity, executive pay, lobbying, tax strategy, things like that. It really accelerated in April 2006 with the launch of this Principles for Responsible Investment that actually came out of the UN. I mean, it launched with a lot of asset managers and financial companies actually out of Europe and Asia, and the U.S. companies ended up coming on after that. But it really was a handbook. And if you sign this, obviously, it means that you were committed to employ these ESG attitude towards your business. They're now up to 3,000 signatures with over 100 trillion assets represented within the PRI world. And if you sign it, people that, that si- didn't sign it at first started to sign it because they realized that fund flows into their asset management business grew on average almost 5% for the six quarters post. They're like, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to show that we're doing something. But here's the thing. The fees range from $500 to $20,000, depending on your size, to be a member of this that you pay annually. So it's really a check-the-box thing. So 50 years ago... To fast forward Exxon, the old good old Exxon times, Milton Friedman once said when his essay, his famous essay in the New York Times, the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. I can safely say that we've gone full bore the other way. And he said, actually, companies focus should be profitability, not social good. So things have changed. So I think that that's a positive. But up until the last few years, ESG was really subjective and was kind of was a, a check the box for companies and investors. But that's changing what, what we just saw of Exxon and other workplaces that are out there. You got a lot of Gen Z and millennials entering the workplace that are going to be entry-level employees are going to work their way up over time where it's really important to them. And in 2020, there was $50 billion in the U.S. alone in assets rolling in, into this sector and $20 billion alone in Q4. But here's my favorite part. This is the part that makes me laugh. The rating agencies. I shudder when I think about them from the time on the, obviously from the subprime crisis, but MSCI, which is the leading index provider, by the way, BlackRock happens to be the largest client. I'll get into that in a minute. Rates these ESGs AAA to triple C, just like you would on the, on the debt of these of some of these companies. Morningstar has a company called Sustainalytics as well. Ratings are given relative to the company in your sector, not on an absolute basis. So no one knows what the weighting of the categories are. 
and in my opinion, society will deem what's most important over time. But this thing is much more qualitative than quantitative. And that worked for a while, but I think that's going to be changing. And let me just run into a few. And somehow, I'm sorry, things always go back to Tesla. But I just I thought of companies I could plug into the MSCI database just to see the grade. And I just wanted to see how it works. Tesla got an A rating. So it's an average rating among its 41 peers in auto. But when you take a deeper dive and you click, it shows that they're a leader in corporate governance and corporate behavior, but they're a laggard in product safety and quality. So to me, if the management claims that a product is to be safe and or the executive pay and or the lack of board diversity and all the things we know about Tesla, just look at a couple of these things. Last thing, guys, of the $50 billion in flows last year into these ESG funds, BlackRock got 45% of that most because most of the flows were into the ETF market. Larry Fink made $30 million in 2020. Okay, that's after $25 million in 19. How's that for ESG? Who was the person responsible that got money from the Fed to buy their own fixed income ETFs? It was BlackRock. So again, there's so much hypocrisy, yet I think really good can come out of it. So I'll just conclude by saying, I think creating and executing on a positive ESG plan can actually spur demand for your products from consumers. They're willing to pay more for your product because they think you're doing things the right way. And the flip side of that is, even if you have a great product, but it's made in a non-ESG way and it's cheaper, they're going to suffer. So there's boycotts that are going to go on. And COVID has accelerated on many fronts how ESG has now come to the forefront as a result. So welcome to the woke world of ESG investing. It's here to stay and the game is on. That's like an Elvis Costello song. Welcome to the woke world, if you recall. I know Dan Nathan. I'm a big Elvis Costello fan, by the way. You also, one of those, before we get out of here, and I want to hear from Melton, we're going to go off the tape with her, but I'll say this, I'll say it again. Facebook, too. I hate everything about Facebook, every single thing about Facebook except the stock. And one thing that I've said for a number of years now on CNBC's Fast Money is the existential risk to Facebook is that they find themselves under the auspices, purview, microscope, whatever word you want to use, of ESG investing. Yeah, you know, you bring up a really good point. It's the, the environmental thing. It seems like the ESG investors have had that clearly in their sights for some time, well before Guy had ever heard the term. It's the social one, I think, is really interesting. And I think that, you know, when we really think about the last 10 years and the rise of just social media in particular, that's not what obviously the S stands for, but the addictive nature of it, I think that that you're right, Guy. I think that some of these behemoths like Facebook are going to have a huge target on their back because we're going to see really the the destruction that it is doing to humankind, the addiction that these products and services have. Well, when we come back, we'll be with Meltem Demers from CoinShares. See you in a bit. Meltem Demers is Chief Strategy Officer of CoinShares, a global digital asset investment firm currently managing over $4 billion in assets and trading billions of dollars of crypto assets on a monthly basis. Prior to joining CoinShares, Meltem helped build and grow Digital Currency Group. She has invested in over 250 companies in the crypto ecosystem. Before she was bitten by the Bitcoin bug, Meltem worked in the oil and gas industry in trading, corporate treasury, and M&A roles. Meltem, it's amazing to have you back. You were with us in February. We had a heated debate. You totally boomered myself and Dan, which is fine. Was it a debate? I feel like it was more of a body slam. I'll take that. I'll take body slam. Absolutely. You came off the top rope and you absolutely annihilated both of us, which is great which is one of the many reasons we're having you back. And thanks for joining us again on the tape. Listen, Meltem, obviously a lot has transpired over the last few months, not least of which coin shares listed publicly. Can you discuss what's going on? I mean, the Stockholm syndrome, but now you have the coin shares Stockholm syndrome. Let's hear about it. Hell yeah. There is nothing that I love more than talking about our amazing team at coin shares. So when I think about going public, right? A lot of times there are a lot of different reasons to go public. For us, I think being an asset manager in the digital asset space, trading in the digital asset space, we were under so much scrutiny from regulators in different jurisdictions. We were providing more financial reporting, more transparency than most publicly listed companies. We built the first ever system where people can actually look at our digital assets in real time and see and verifiably prove that what we say we have is what we have. You can actually prove using the blockchain that the assets that we say we have in our ETPs are there. So going public, I think for us, we were already doing all of this internal financial operational work. And we were like, you know what? 
let's just go all the way. 18-month process. It started in late 2019, came to fruition in early 2021. So a lot transpired in that time, but it really was a, a great milestone. Seven years of that business. I've been in it for the last three. We IPO'd on March 11th, 2021. We just reported Q1 earnings, had a stellar Q1, 50 million in revenues. About 40% of that comes from the 4 billion in asset management. So the fees off that. And then the 60% remainder comes from our trading business, making a lot of strategic investments. Just today we announced we're investing in an ESG themed ETF manager in the US. So lots going on across the business. Very exciting, crazy quarter for crypto also. In the last three weeks alone, we've gone as high as 2.6 trillion in market cap and as low as 1.4 trillion. Remember, we started the year under 1 trillion. So I love it when people talk about like this crazy crypto correction. We are still up a lot. We're up 70% since the start of the year. So everybody just needs to, to calm down. I feel like the temperature gets so crazy high whenever anyone talks about crypto. Yeah, it's, it's been wild. You can see from my sorry state that it's been wild. We're going to hit some of that volatility in a little bit because I think there's some pretty interesting things going on when you talk about we're still up a lot. I think it's interesting that Bitcoin is up about 35% year to date versus Ethereum, the second largest crypto, which has about 42, 43% of the market cap. Bitcoin is still up about 250%. So year to date, there's some really interesting relative performance. I want to caveat that though. Bitcoin ran from its prior high of 20K all the way up to 60 it's now trading at around 40, 45 range. Ether at the end of last year didn't have a run up. It was relatively flat going into the end of the year at around 1500. It also trebled hitting a peak of around 4,500. So relative performance, same almost. Both have trebled from their prior all-time highs in 2017 and 2018. So I think if you look at the time scale and just the total magnitude, both have rallied about the same. Obviously, you can use rolling 90-day, 180-day, etc. We can delve more into that. But I think, again, there's also been outperformance in the long tail. It's risk on, baby. And it's retail loves risk. They love the doggy coins. There's a lot of nutty stuff happening. And Fintwit, Fintwit is going bananas. I mean, I don't know if you guys saw like HSBC put out a memo, a sell side memo on FinTwit people to follow. And I was like, this has to be top of FinTwit. Like, <laughs> when investment banks are putting out sell side research, <laughs> encouraging people to get on FinTwit and follow people like Liquidity or Ramp Capital or myself. I'm like, this this is top. No, it's pretty amazing. Now, listen, you spoke about crypto. You're spot on. But there's an infrastructure around crypto that seemingly is a bit tenuous at best. I mean, you can use whatever adjective you want to use, but the market infrastructure for crypto has been delicate. And obviously, we saw that in terms of what we saw with Coinbase, right, go down on a day where it, it absolutely couldn't go down. Can you sort of speak to that? Because obviously, we've got to get up the curve on that front. Yeah, that's such a great point, Guy. And honestly, there's a joke within the industry that every time there's a rally or a, a dip, Coinbase is going to be down. Anytime you want to do anything, Coinbase is going to be down. And look, what I think is really interesting here, and the reason this is happening, Guy, if we just delve into how these markets work, we distribute crypto assets directly to retail. On most other platforms, Schwab may serve tens of millions of users, but they're aggregating all of that in an omnibus account. And all of that activity is sort of internal accounting. What's really interesting about crypto platforms, Coinbase, over 60 million registered users, I believe at last count. Binance, who is orders of magnitude larger than Coinbase, probably has over 200 million registered users. These platforms are directly serving hundreds of millions of retail and institutional clients in real time. And the issue is when the volumes get crazy, like I have never seen platforms scale so fast. You can't run enough servers. You can't run enough infrastructure to serve that many customers at once. Finance, by the way, traditional finance has never fucking seen those types of numbers ever before, 
ever. So the volumes we're talking about, the amount of effort and engineering lift we're talking about, the computational infrastructure we're talking about is crazy intense. Add on top of that, that most crypto derivatives are perpetual swaps, where your perp swap is calculated in real time. So if you have 100 million open positions on your platform, you're literally running 100 million calculations per second to real time update prices on those perp swaps, and they never expire. That's a lot of engineering lift. Again, it has to get better, but I think it's very different. Our crypto platform is orders of magnitude more complex than any other type of trading app or platform in traditional markets where you're adding in these layers of intermediaries. So yes, it needs to get fixed, but it's also a really freaking hard problem because it's so much volume. All right. So you just said a word intermediary. And I thought that was one of the promises of the blockchain to kind of get rid of some of these intermediaries. I thought there was a really interesting article in the Wall Street Journal the other day, and it was featuring Uniswap. So decentralized exchanges. And the stat that stuck with me is that I think Coinbase did $110 billion in volume in April, so last month, while Uniswap did about $37 billion. So let me ask you this. Were these decentralized exchanges, are they having some of the same problems as some of the very centralized exchanges? Yes. So it's different. Our DEX or decentralized exchange, like Uniswap. And by the way, let me just give you some quick Uniswap numbers. In the last 24 hours, Uniswap has cleared over $2 billion worth of trades. It's generated $8 million in trading fees operating 24-7, 365, serving over 38,000 trade pairs, and anyone can add a trade pair at any time. There's over $8 billion of liquidity supporting those trade pairs. So like numbers-wise, these are really big numbers. You don't have the same issues with Uniswap as you have with Coinbase because you're not depending on individual servers. The issue you have is Uniswap runs on top of Ethereum. Ethereum runs on something called the Ethereum Virtual Machine. The premise of the Ethereum network is basically instead of having one computer computer and all of these different computers running on their own. You have one global network for compute and you have state recorded on the entire Ethereum network. So the issue you run into with something like Uniswap, and I had this issue last week, is the Ethereum network gets really congested. And so in order to get a transaction through on this public network, the fees skyrocket. So last week at the peak of the hype, I woke up at 6 a.m. I think it was Tuesday morning trying to do a trade. I paid $1,200 in fees to clear a trade on the Ethereum network. Now, again, typically fees can range anywhere from $5 to $50 as of late, and there are solutions in place to address this. $1,200 a lot, but again, this is a constraint at the network level. When there's a ton of demand for compute on the Ethereum network, prices are going to skyrocket. So always in systems, you're making trade-offs. Centralization is helping you make a trade-off, right? The reason exchanges that like the ones we have, the hub and spoke model exists, is because centralization provides benefits in terms of economies of scale and also the rules we have around clearing T plus one, T plus two. The reason we have them is to bring some structure to markets. We have circuit breakers, we have trading hours. In crypto land, none of that exists. We trade 24-7, 365 on these open source networks directly settling on the Ethereum network peer-to-peer totally different engineering problem, totally different technical problem. So it's just a really crazy, weird, fun, wild design space. I'm all about it. I love it. Clearly you are. The energy is exuding through the microphone, as they say. But let me ask you a question. You mentioned something about perp something. I don't know. The only perp thing I know is a perp walk. I mean, you might be familiar with that. I'm not personally familiar with that. Let the record no, reflect. N- let the record reflect. That's noted, Counselor. But you know what I do know is you know Michael Saylor, who's become sort of the Maharaji, I think, for the entire space, you know, he talks about balance sheets and how balance sheets are a liability, and he's turned a liability into an asset by now accumulating close to 100,000 Bitcoin or so on the MicroStrategies balance sheet, which is fantastic. But as Bitcoin went from 65,000, albeit you know, still elevated for the year down to 30,000. Do you think the volatility, I know the volatility is great for you and your business, but do you think it's scaring some of these CEOs, CFOs away from replicating what Mr. Saylor's done? Yeah, look, I think Michael Saylor is an anomaly. I think MicroStrategy is an anomaly as a, a business. Time will tell how that strategy pays off. And it's a strategy. It's not my strategy. And kudos to Saylor. He raised a zero coupon bond to buy Bitcoin. If you can do that, I would do that all day and just pay myself to do that. That's 
a brilliant plan. So kudos to him. The fact that people bought it's incredible. But what I think the, the issue is for most people is look like nobody's trying to trade short term on their balance sheet. When I worked in corporate treasury, we weren't running a trading business. We were running an allocation business and we we're looking to manage risk and return. Typically, if I want to take a risk, I would outsource it to a risk manager by allocating to someone who manages that risk and knows that market and trades that market. I was trading overnights, like the least sexy thing on the planet. I was trading over nights. And it was good. I could make two to 3% a year trading overnights, fairly low risk. But I think the issue here is when we're talking about corporates allocating to Bitcoin, it's still not clear to people where Bitcoin fits on the balance sheet. There's another really technical and non-sexy accounting issue. And actually this shows up in our Q1 financials. Bitcoin and other crypto assets are not recognized as assets on the balance sheet under both IFRS and GAAP. IFRS is kind of the European accounting standard. GAAP is the US accounting standard. Under these accounting standards, Bitcoin is technically an intangible asset. So in terms of your net income, it gets added in after the net income line. So we had to create a new line item in our Q1 called comprehensive net income. We show ourselves as losing $1.7 billion in Q1. But when you add back in all of the crypto on our balance sheet, you get the net comprehensive income, which includes the digital assets. So I think the real issue is when we look at balance sheets, the way that these crypto assets are being materialized on financial statements, really confusing. So I think there are a lot of very nuanced technical accounting issues as well as execution issues here. But look, the volatility, most of the allocators who are making these decisions at the institutional level, the volatility is not going to spook them because they're doing their homework. We talk to them. Some of these guys we've been talking to for two, three years. They're really taking the time. They're going through a structured process. These decisions typically go all the way up to the board or some sort of formal internal risk committee. And when they're making these allocation decisions, it's not a two-month decision. It's a, hey, here's a one, two, three-year allocation decision. It's really long-term focused. The majority of the selling activity that we saw around the volatility Number one, anytime there's a lot of volatility, both the downside and the upside are exacerbated due to the way that derivatives markets work. The perpetual swap is a unique instrument in crypto. It's a different type of options contract. We don't really have European or American options. What we have is this thing called the perpetual swap. It's always open. And you're continually funding the swap on both sides. So every eight hours, either the seller or the buyer of the swap has to fund to keep the rate in check with the actual price of the asset in the market. And this is really a unique construction. And again, it's exacerbated by the fact that people are constantly having to fund or post cash to keep their perpetual position open. And so what happens is anytime there's extreme volatility, these funding rates get really out of whack and one side has to pay anywhere from 15 to 20% a month to keep their positions open. And the rate of cash borrow in this market is really expensive. You typically have to pay 15 to 20% interest and post at least 110 to 130% collateral to get that cash. So in terms of funding these positions, really expensive. So as things start to move, people start selling. They start getting liquidated or they start liquidating their positions. And then a lot of the selling we see is retail. May 19th, busiest day ever on both Binance and Coinbase in terms of active users, both buying and selling. Record-breaking days in this industry, the retail, the spot volume, as well as individual retail account activity went through the roof. It was two orders of magnitude higher than any other prior day ever in the history of this asset class. So we also have to remember that the fact that people can access this asset class through crypto native venues, Robinhood, SoFi, other venues, now PayPal and Square, there are people who are now trading crypto alongside their stocks, alongside whatever else they're trading. And so all of that just creates this environment where there's a lot of reflexivity and also a lot of contagion. So again, I think that's really what drove the dip the last time around. Can you explain over the last month, some of those big downward liquidations have happened over the weekends? Does it have something to do with these hedging mechanisms and these perpetual swaps? Or BK has told Guy and myself, he said it on Fast Money, there's also something about the banks uh, being closed. You know, that, that sort of thing. What's the 411 on this? Because I think a lot of people are scratching their heads and thinks there's a lot of funny business going on over the weekends. <laughs> yeah, 
and look, it's really difficult. This market is not like any other market. And that makes it really difficult to explain to people because they're like, what do you mean? I've never heard of that before. And I'm like, right, but just bear with me. It's like a whole saga. There's a lot of pieces. But long story short, here's the issue. Number one, these markets trade 24-7, 365. Retail is more active on nights and on weekends. Institutions, market makers are more active during weekdays. They operate typically during normal business hours. On weekends, what tends to happen, retail tends to get more active, but market makers and institutional traders aren't there to trade against that and keep the market in check. So we see spot prices starting to move the market, whereas during the weekdays, typically it's derivatives driving the market. On the weekends and on nights, you get spot driving the market. And so what starts to happen is things are just get a little wacky. People who are trying to take advantage of the ARB, every ARB you can't fund is an ARB you miss. So if you're trying to move cash around, you're talking about two to three days, your bank's not open. It might be an issue with trying to get cash into a specific venue. If the Ethereum network's super congested, you can't trade on these DEXs because you're not going to be able to get your transaction through very quickly. There's all these really interesting compounding factors, but it is a fact. Kaiko, K-A-I-K-O.com has a ton of really great market data and research on this. Order book liquidity is just way thinner on the weekends. And so what happens is retail gets home, start looking at their portfolio, start trading into the news. People are active on Twitter over the weekend. But yeah, the unique structure of this market creates some really cool opportunities, but there's also some really interesting sort of knock-on effects and these really interesting patterns that start to emerge. And again, it can't be attributed to any single one thing. Every time it's slightly different. But in this last run, what happened? Weekend retail started selling, price started dropping, people aren't watching their book on the weekends, so people are getting margin called, not meeting margin call, they're getting liquidated. If you don't meet margin call, I'm not waiting till the bank opens. You don't get a two-day notice, you're getting liquidated fucking immediately. That's the thing about crypto. We settle with permanence. When you get liquidated, it's over. Your Bitcoin is mine. And so that's what we see. I got liquidated for the first time ever in my life. I got liquidated last Tuesday. I had an open position in a lending protocol. I had used Ethereum, Ether as collateral to take out a stable coin loan. And so I had to maintain 150% collateral ratio. I was at 200%, very well over collateralized. I went to bed, ETH was at 2,500. I was like, I'm Gucci, woo, this is great. This is gonna be fine. That night, what happened at like 4.30 in the morning, literally I had a sticky note on my laptop that said check collateral ratio. At some point in the morning, I think around 4.30, ETH dipped as low as 16.50. That was 149%. I got liquidated. Boom. Just like that. And then when I woke up, ETH was back at like 2,200. I was like, what What happened here? How did I get liquidated? But you're totally geeked up. I mean, think about all the things you're involved in right now. And I also love your Twitter account. By the way, folks, you should follow Meltem if you don't, because it's a fascinating one. And earlier this week, you tweeted something that sort of caught my attention. When people finally understand what Will Reeves and the Fold app team have been building, watch out. Now, for you folks that don't know, Fold, I think, is doing like a Bitcoin rewards program through Visa. I'm sure I'm getting it wrong, but maybe you can sort of educate us and the audience on that. So Guy, just to your pride, I am really geeked up. I've been doing this for seven years. I've invested in 250 companies. I built two businesses in this space. I have to use these products and protocols because I don't know what's going on unless I'm doing it myself. And like most of the time, I have no idea what's going on. So I'm typically user number one of all this stuff. Because if I don't get it, how am I going to tell people about it? I watch people on TV. I'm like, bro, you've never traded DeFi a day in your life. Like, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not trying to be mean. Wait, are you talking to me, bro? Are you broing me when I'm on Fast Money? Is that what you're doing? Yeah, Dan, we got to get you aping some DeFi. Like, we're going to hang out. We're going to get our computers together. And I'm going to take you on the weirdest journey of your life. And we're going to set you up with some collateralized positions. You're going to love it. And then you too can get liquidated at 4.30 a.m. on a Tuesday morning. (laughs) It'll be great. So on the Fold side, I love that you brought this up. Fold is an amazing product. You have this cool card. Basically what they're doing is they're letting you spend your dirty dollars and earn Bitcoin. So it's a Bitcoin cash back program. This is what my card looks like. It's a cool little card. They're coming out with a new metal one, which I'm excited about. There's also a really cool gamified rewards API. They just opened up the program. They were in a private beta. They just opened up the program to all US consumers, over 250,000 people on the wait list. 
you guys get your card ASAP. I've been using this card a little bit, not that much to be quite candid because I'm really tied to my Amex for corporate stuff, but I've been using it a little bit. I've already earned $700 of Bitcoin in the last six months on about $3,000 of spending activity. And that Bitcoin has also gone up in value. So we're taking cash spenders and turning them into Bitcoin savers. And now what's really cool is a bunch of people are getting exposed to Bitcoin for the first time. They're not having to buy it. They're earning it. Fold has partnered with Visa, has built some really cool stuff with Visa that's going to be coming out in the next few quarters. But imagine being able to select Bitcoin cash back on any credit card in your wallet today. How cool would that be? I'm trying to do this in my head, Dan, and I apologize. But you could literally, let's just say you could spend $10,000 in what do you call it? Dirty money or dirty cash? Fiat. Fiat. We call it fiat. And you get paid back in rewards in Bitcoin, you could actually wind up making money on the deal if you see a price appreciation in the cryptocurrency. I mean, it's 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 hard so for guy, me to wrap my head around that. Guy, but that this makes is the sense, idea. Right? Fold was my first investment out of my venture fund at CoinShares. We at Fold, me and Will, we got together six months before I invested. He came into my office. He was like, Meltzum, you are going to invest in my company. Let me tell you why. Here's the vision. We're going to make everyone on the platform millionaires. We're going to give a bunch of people Bitcoin that's going to appreciate in value. So effectively, what we're doing is we are building the biggest mass audience of Bitcoin holders the world has ever seen. And we're doing it through a habit they're already engaging in today through spending. You don't have to do anything special. And every day you look at your wallet and you see your Bitcoin balance. You're going to be so excited. I'm so in love with the idea because it's really simple and it's executed so well. So I want to make every spender in America a Bitcoin millionaire. Fair enough. I'm with you. If you just have us jump the line, that would be fabulous. Meltem, we touched on some of that volatility and you were right to look at the performance year over year when we were talking about Bitcoin versus Ether. But let's just kind of talk about a little bit of the changing narrative over the last couple of months. And, and, <laughs> no, I, well, what, what, yeah. But I mean, it seems like there is these internal religious wars going on in the crypto universe. So for Guy and me, we're just kind of dropping in, checking it out, talking about it a little bit, trying to talk to smart people, that sort of thing. But when I think about, let's just talk year to date for a second, okay? And I get it. Bitcoin is only up 35%, but it's up 1,000% from its March 2020 lows, okay? And that is massively outperforming either. But here's the thing. There seems to be this sort of shifting narrative where Bitcoin for months had been making this rounding top in a way and where Ethereum or Ether right now really feels like that's where a lot of the positive sentiment is. Can you speak to that a little bit? At least when I'm looking at FinTwit and I'm looking at all the stuff that's being built on the Ethereum network, it seems that Bitcoin has literally been placed into this store of value bucket. And Ethereum is the one that is this whole new financial utopian decentralized world is being built on. Explain to us. And then the other thing, lastly, and maybe tie it into this, this move from proof of work to proof of stake, it seems to be one of the underpinnings of this bull case. Look at you. You're a coiner, Dan. So well articulated (laughs) right there. I love it. Thank you. So all of that, very, very astute observation. And certainly if you look at crypto Twitter or CT, as we call it from the outside, and you, you see a lot of that. Here's what tends to happen. I think this happens in all markets, but you see it especially in crypto. And we saw it in in 2017 as well, right? In 2017, Bitcoin dominance hit a low, I think in around December of 2017, as Ethereum hit its all-time high going into January. And that's when the market peaked in, in that cycle. Typically, what we tend to see is Bitcoin moves first. Bitcoin is the big daddy. It's 50% of the market cap. Ether is about 15% of the market cap. So it's about three to four orders of magnitude smaller than Bitcoin. And then from there, there's this long tail. What tends to happen in these cycles is Bitcoin goes first. And we saw this. Bitcoin trebled from mid-December to about March. Bitcoin trebled. It went on this crazy run from 20K to 60K. Then people are feeling good. People are feeling wealthy. People are like, I want to take more risk within the crypto asset class. So what we start to see is people taking Bitcoin profits and diversifying into the next asset that they think is going to give them a 3x. Because the likelihood of Bitcoin going from 60 to 250k is much lower than the likelihood of ETH going from 1200 to 5k. So people are thinking about it in sort of relative terms. Bitcoin's had its run. What's next? Well, ETH looks next. This looks promising. So we saw a big sector rotation and people rotating into ETH to 
take advantage of what they felt would be the coming run in, in ETH. And we see that now. ETH is currently trading at around 2700 A lot of people rotating into ETH. We saw this reflected in fund flows as well. Started the year with close to $2 billion in Ethereum products. Now we're at about $8 billion in Ethereum products in ETPs. And that report can be found on our site. We publish it every Monday morning at noon. Worldwide flows across all crypto asset ETPs and trusts and products. But what's been really interesting to observe, now ETH has gone on its little run. When ETH went on its little run and trebled, went from 1500 to 4500 people took profit and said, what's next? What else is going to run? That's where we saw a lot of the attention on these so-called meme coins. People are looking at them. They're like, wait a minute, Doge at 20 cents. That's definitely going to run to a dollar. I can make 5x there versus the likelihood of ETH going from 4500 to, say, 15000 That's much less likely. So what we tend to see in these cycles as some of the larger market cap assets get dragged up is people move further out on their risk spectrum and go into some of the longer tail assets trying to find higher returns, relative returns there. And then what we tend to see now is over this dip that happened, we saw a lot of rotation back into Bitcoin. So we tend to see this sort of interesting relationship where there are these six to nine month cycles. Typically, it starts with a Bitcoin rally. It has historically been Bitcoin rally led just because Bitcoin is such a big part of the market. And then what we tend to see is other altcoins, as we call them, will go through this rally. Although at this point, I think Ethereum is firmly established as its own asset. There are probably a handful of others that have earned that merit. And then once people move further out on the risk reward spectrum, they wait, they see what happens. And then typically they do tend to ultimately rotate their profits back into Bitcoin. Now we see people also taking profits back into Ether. And then let's not forget, dollar stable coins are a big part of this. There's now over $100 billion of dollar-backed stablecoins that sit on all of these networks. So the majority of it is on the Bitcoin and Ethereum network. But there are some stable coins on other networks like Terra, Polkadot, and others that are emerging. We crossed that threshold this week, over $100 billion of stable coins. So what you see is people taking profits, plowing them back into Bitcoin and ETH, which is what they want to be fundamentally long anyways. And then now we're also seeing an increased dollarization where people are trying to hold profits in dollars because they're waiting for another dip to redeploy those, those dollars. I love when you say trebled. A dope like myself will say tripled, but you're highly educated, you say troubled. I hear troubled, I think of troubled makers from, if you remember, Pitch Perfect, which is a great movie, by the way. You know so who the else reason said- I say troubled, guys, because I was a musician growing up, right? See that? Oh, th- yeah. There you go. Well, you know who wasn't a musician growing up, and this is a crazy segue, Elon Musk. I think a lot of people give Elon Musk way too much credit. Elon Musk has 70 million Twitter followers. Anything he says or does is going to get picked up. 70 million is a huge number. He is the Kim Kardashian of Twitter. Kimmy rules Instagram. She's the queen bee of Instagram. I think she has over 100 million followers. Elon Musk is FinTwit's Kim Kardashian. So what I think has been really interesting is the trend was already well underway in crypto before Elon showed up. He just added fuel to the fire. But I think a lot of people attribute things to his influence when in fact he's just amplifying them because he has such a large audience. But Elon Musk typically tends to show up when things are already underway. I think he is a showman. He's a joker. He likes to show up when things are happening and add fuel to the fire and keep himself in the conversation. I think that's exactly what he's managed to do here. But I think, again, we have to be really careful not to confuse causation and correlation. I think the causation was something else entirely. It's the fact that this market has rallied like crazy, and we've seen more retail participation than ever before in this asset class, more institutional participation. It really has been a banner year, a banner quarter for this industry. So I think, again, that's where my frustration comes in. The media really always wants to sensationalize anything Elon does because it gets clicks. Like, the man has 70 million followers. That's orders of magnitude larger than the next thousand FinTwit accounts combined. It's a lot. Yeah, I guess the oddity 
for someone like me when I look at what he's doing, weighing in on some of these things, is that he's kind of a busy guy. He's the CEO, founder of Tesla, which is a $550 billion market cap company, a controversial company. He's a huge defense contractor, CEO, founder of SpaceX. It just seems like a really odd use of his time. And I don't think he's being a joker. I think there's other stuff going on there. And I think the about face he did on Bitcoin was curious. I mean, are we expected to think that the smartest man, not only in the world, but maybe in the universe, didn't know what the claims were from a energy standpoint as it relates to Bitcoin? I know that you've spoken a lot about that, but give us your take on that. I mean, it just seems odd to me. Yeah, look, narratives are more important than facts. What people are doing is constructing narratives. And by the way, Michael Saylor is the pro at this. He's writing his own narrative. Musk is writing his own narrative. Now they've teamed up to try to write a narrative together around Bitcoin mining, which is, is problematic in some ways. What I find interesting is... Wait, wait. So why is that problematic? Here you have two people who've been in Bitcoin for less than a year. And suddenly this industry, very critical part of the industry, is going to take direction from these people. I just find that, again, I appreciate the sentiment, but I just think it's a very odd choice. Why? That's kind of the point. He's not a joker. He's just this meme lord. He's just a troll. To me, I think it's really interesting. You know, when I think of you, you're the meme goddess when it comes to the crypto world, but you're doing it from a point where you're really trying to educate people. And I believe Sailor is actually trying to do the same thing. I just don't know what Elon Musk is trying to do. And this is, we don't have to make this about Musk. I just think that I his- I don't think cl- he knows what he's trying to do yeah. other than engagement. It's the dopamine. But look, again, here's what I think is interesting. As you alluded to, you know, Musk is supposedly running these two businesses. Does Tesla have an accounting officer yet or do they still not have an accounting officer? I don't think they do. Here you have, you know, a company that put Bitcoin on its balance sheet. It sold some of that Bitcoin in Q1 in order to make the net income line a positive number. So let's also consider that. And I just find it interesting. There's some really glaring gaps in knowledge that are demonstrated by some of Musk's tweets about Bitcoin and and other assets, digital assets. And so I just find it interesting. What due diligence was done when Bitcoin was added to the Tesla balance sheet? Because you you would know these things. Other institutions we engage with, what I like about, as you alluded to, you know, Michael Saylor, I think... He's really taken the time. He's done the homework. He's trying to educate and and he tries to get the the facts out there. I think what we see with Elon Musk is a totally different pattern where he's like, look, I'm just going to say whatever outlandish thing I think with zero due diligence done. And I'm going to put this asset on my balance sheet. I guess they didn't do any diligence on it or really understand how it works. And that's just interesting to me. And look, Elon Musk is a trailblazer. He's doing his own thing. He's making it work. 70 million Twitter followers, two of the world's biggest companies and he's living it up. So kudos to him. I always say smoke him if you got him. Like he's got him and he's smoking him, you know? You know who else is? I mean, you know who else is a trailblazer? You are. And I got to tell you, throughout history, you know, people that have succeeded, you know, they're the one name people, Plato, Socrates, Shaq, Cher. Meltem is in that list as well because you only need the one name. So thanks for joining us, Meltem. It's been great. Too much pressure, man. I'm just an idiot on the internet who loves Bitcoin. I encourage people like reach (laughs) out, DM me. I'm just trying to make it. I'm just trying to have the most fun, learn some things and maybe impart some of that on the world as I as I go through it. That's it. Well, many people try, few succeed and you are the one that's succeeding. So congratulations and thanks again for being here. Thanks, Meltem. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.